Hello again. I'm recording this final podcast of the year in a year when my most engaged with post on Instagram was about pricing. But it wasn't really about pricing. It was about self-employed people stopping and reassessing the way that they value their work and value themselves. I, th- I was seeing a lot of light bulb moments in those comments that were shared. And do see the links below this if you want to see the the many comments shared from tradespeople around the country. A lot of light bulb moments, I think, where people realised that it didn't have to be this way. Constantly struggling, feeling like you're buying work, feeling like you're, you've never, you're never doing enough because something goes wrong on a job and you lose money or you think you've made money and then you get to the end of another month and you're thinking, why is it such a struggle? Well, sometimes reassessment is prompted by a crisis that makes us stop and think about how our priorities are are really playing out. This is what happens to our interviewee today and his wife, Paul and Becky, who some of you may remember if you were on board with my YouTube channel in the early days when I put a call out to support them when Paul was rushed into hospital for open heart surgery. If you do remember that, then you'll be interested to hear how they're doing now. And even if you weren't aware of him, I do think you'll, you'll take away some good insights from somebody who stared death in the face and reassessed his life, his work and his family priorities as a result. Without further ado, hi, Paul and Becky. Hello. <laughs> Would you like to just talk, Paul, about... Um, well, why don't you tell us what, what you do for a living to start with, for those that don't know, and then talk about what, what happened. Uh, for a living, I'm, I do metal work primarily a proper sort of blacksmithing um, rather than just fabrication. Um, So I do everything from traditional jointing of metal to fabrication, which is welding. And um, I have my own business and have had had my own business for about 17 years. It was the 22nd of November 2019 and I've been fitting um, two gates, artistic gates in Bristol and I'd come home, it'd gone quite well, and I'd kept, you know, it'd been quite a, a reasonably hard day. And I'd gone to, to visit uh, a friend who'd, who'd, who was a woodsman who chopped his middle finger off with a bill hook, and he'd been and had an operation. And I ended up on an off chance going to visit him to cheer him up because I thought he'd be back from hospital, and ended up um, taking his girlfriend to see him in hospital because he was still in hospital. And at the point of leaving the hospital after seeing him, I ended up. Um, I remember what I said. She was saying to me, he's pretty tough, he'll be okay. And I said, I'm really tough too. And boom, my chest as I left the hospital just uh, felt very bad. And I I thought I can't go more than another 100 yards to the fresh air. And I sat down and on the bus stop, and I said to this girl, uh, I've only met her once or twice before, I said, go and get somebody because things are really bad. And she said, I think you're right. But luckily, the front of that hospital was 400 yards from the A&E. Um, department and I got pushed there within about five minutes in a porter chair, five ten minutes, and they l- looked at me and said, um, "You know, this guy doesn't look good. Get the doctor." He poked his head round. It was a full waiting room. He said, "Put him straight in recess too." So it must have looked pretty grim. That was the start of being scanned, and then they didn't tell me much. And then I was being put in an ambulance and taken to the Bristol Heart Institute, and I f- still felt pretty on the air, like my life was hanging by a thread, and I was just praying in my in my heart that I was going to be all right and my wife managed to get there just as I left the A&E and 
flagged down. The, amb- the ambulance was flagged down and she jumped in. Mm. And we ended up at... Uh, straight to the pre-op Straight room. to the pre-op room in the basement of the BRI, uh, which is Bristol Heart Institute, and met the surgeons, met the anaesthetist, and somebody called Dennis who said he was going to be looking after me and basically had a bit of time and it was basically sign there or die. So, you know, oh. sign there or die was basically, you know, you could but sign. It was, it was a, felt te- like a that. tear in your yeah. eye. They've told me yeah. since that it was a 68 mil aneurysm and for people who know about measurements for being craftsmen, 68 well, mil aneurysm on the aorta is quite a lot, uh, quite a big ball. So it's like having a 68 mil ball on your right uh, that's tearing the in, the inner walls and about to pop and if that had oh. popped I'd have been dead so um so the, I the surgeon said afterwards it's about a three percent chance to survive they said it was a three and I, tear, it was yeah. signed that signed this thing and said you have a you know you could be paralyzed such and such a percentage and such and such a percentage of death and such and such a percentage of Stroke. stroke and such a such a percentage of this that and the other and then this was like from going to uh, going to work in the morning fitting two nice gates happy customers and going back thinking I'm going to go and see a friend and cheer him up um, and then ending up in in that situation <laughs> on, on an off chance because I, I lived about uh, probably about 13 or 14 miles from that particular hospital where I went to see, wow. visit this guy and I, I, I wasn't really wanting to visit him it was quite embarrassing um, I was just taking his girlfriend and I, she saw him for 20 minutes and I saw him for about two so it was just a bit of an, a, 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 a good deed errand for a friend sort of thing which you paid know. off which did pay off because I was put in exactly in the right place at the right time because before I, that I had no idea that I had any issues Oh, you didn't. I was going to say, did you, were you aware of any issues with your chest, your heart well, you before did, that? You had. Well, I, yeah, I did. I did have an issue. I did. I was aware that something was going on because I was waking up in the morning and I could sort of hear my heart squelching Oof, yeah. through my pillow. And I'd been to see a doctor in the GP surgery who listened to it profusely for quite a long time. And Bex was with me then, mm. and he basically said it sounded like a pinging drum, and he'd never heard any, anything like it. This is about. S- four or five weeks or a couple of weeks previous to, to what happened, the big event. Mm. And he'd said, he'd got his colleague in as well and they'd spent quite a while listening to it and said it sounded like a pinging drum and they just gave me a, sent me in the, you know, a week later I got a, an appointment for an echocardiogram, um, which was, you know... Scheduled for a few weeks after 21st of, yeah. It was the 21st <laughs> of December it was supposed to be the echocardiogram. That was okay. that was as much as I knew about what was wrong, and since we've we know that after the operation, he told me that the the heart valve that they took out my original aorta was a bicuspid valve, so it had a two openings instead of three openings, which is the normal openings in your aorta valve is three openings and two. When you have two openings, that's like a counted as a uh, birth defect or a birth a genetic so the problem was something. always there well it must have been and I've 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 climbed Ben Nevis and slept on the top up you know at the hard route I've climbed all the high peaks I've done loads of loads of adventurous stuff I've been you know I've been in the bush in the middle of Africa I've been up the Rocky Mountains doing stuff and I've been all over the world doing 
stuff, you know, the pushing, it's pushing the boat out. And you do very physical work yeah. for a living. Yeah, I mean, when I was younger, I used to, you know, when I first, I was a ground worker and I used to um, shovel a ridiculous amount of gravel and concrete and tarmac and whatever else a day. I mean, a ridiculous amount of tonnage per day with the shovel. So, you know, I just, thank God, he, he had it all lined up for me to be in... Um, in, a, in the right place at the right time, on an off chance of an errand. Yeah. So you so you see God's hand in that. You really that's how you see it. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think. Uh, I think we go when our time's up, and if He wants to keep us here, He keeps us here. When you your days are numbered anyway, and it, it's known already. I think that's what I think anyway. Mm. You know, I don't. Whatever anybody wants to think. Uh, my opinion is that they are numbered and he knows the number of them and whether it's tomorrow, 10 years, you know, we've only got now really, haven't we? So yeah. we're in at the moment and I guess looking back at it now, I think in many ways this this was, this was event was one of the best things that ever happened to me Okay. because it changed my perspective on life at a critical point when I had two young children um i had a young the youngest was two two and the the other one was four mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. the eldest was four so and i was working way too hard probably trying to and i was always striving i was taking on about 20 jobs at once and with all different sites to measure all different specifications, all different designs of different products to make balustrades, gates, railings, staircases, curtain poles, you know, you name it. And um, I'd have 20 of these jobs right through the summer every year. And did you have staff at that time? I had one sort of semi-full-time helping me okay. and another casual, so... But, so it was really an event that made you stop, obviously. Yeah. And Because you really were staring death in the face, right? yeah. I mean, I, I remember the, the anaesthetist saying to me, saying, oh, it's time, Becky needs to go out. She was, we sort of had some time that felt like about 10 minutes, but I think it was about probably nearing an hour. They gave us some space. And the anaesthetist mm-hmm. came back in and said, said and Beck said, when, how long have we got? And he said, well, really, you need to, we need to get going because it's, it was he a... He said, when do I need to say goodbye? And he yeah, said, yeah. Well, now. <laughs> yeah. I felt that if, that he could have died when it happened outside the hospital and he had, he hadn't at that point, so that sort of reassured me that God wasn't finished with him yet. That's how I sort okay. of felt. I mean, I still felt very nervous because it was such a huge operation and a precarious situation. Not that I fully understood how precarious, mm. I think, but, yeah, it was still pretty scary. Mm. But I yeah. had a sort of underlying assurance that okay. he, he could have died straight away and he hadn't, and he, he yeah. still had a chance to I remember the get through the surgery. Yeah. So. I remember the anaesthetist, Becky leaving, and, and then the anaesthetist saying, I'll, I'll start you off gently now. And that's the last thing I remember. Him okay. just saying, start you off gently, and he plunged a syringe, and that was the end of, of that time, as far as I... And basically, I woke up. Well, he said, he said like, when you wake up, it'll be, like, mid-afternoon the next day, by the time you actually yeah. wake up, and you'll, it'll feel like waking up from a car crash. That was sort of how he described yeah. it. Yeah, it was proper... Open heart surgery, is that right? They really Yeah, I mean, I've got two scars, one where they've cut right down the front. Right, right down the front. 
and I've got the one on the, on the side where which I never knew what it was and I had to ask them what that was about and they said that before that they the anesthetist goes in there and he bypasses the area so they put you on a bypass machine so they bypass so they do something something the clever. blood flow the blood flow okay. yeah and they have to basically bypass that area before they pop the chest because if they pop the chest without doing that and the and this this aneurysm Mm. pops itself you are you, that they can't do anything about it then you're dead okay. so that's what they've told me since anyway so i've got two scars basically from that and it was open heart so they chop you down the front um and apparently they chill you chill you down to to sort of they wanted to chill you down to about 18 degrees but i don't think i ever went quite that far down i think it depended how far up the aortic arch they had to work yeah, cold, I've got yeah. no idea, but they. It's to protect your brain, I think. Yeah, they protect you by process, ch- chilling your whole, you know, chilling your whole body down to eighteen, eighteen degrees or something from oh. you know. And when I woke up, I just remember there was a friend. I uh, was with Becky, who was actually a doctor, as well. Who I'm very grateful for him. And I just remember him. He's got a brummy accent and um, his grin. I just remember that and Bex talking about some funny stuff about pigeons on the ledge outside. <laughs> so, okay. You know, so, um, and then I, they pull this tube out of you, which you sort of vaguely remember. And then, you know, so it's quite, it's, um, yeah, it's pretty full on. And then you, it's in a, t- it's just a weird place. And they, you, were, you, you know, in intensive care for a couple of days. A couple of days. High in dependency intensive. unit. And then yeah. How long was I in the high dependency? Only a day or about a day and a half. I know when I heard what happened, knowing you're self-employed, just thinking, well, what's the future going to hold for you working physically? It was that was that a worry very early on, or did or did that just fade into insignificance? Well, I, I just didn't really. I tried not to think about it. Um, I, I don't think I really considered properly. I was just um, putting my efforts into getting well from this in the intensive care. Unit and then I didn't, need capacity I didn't have the capacity. Well, you're that ill, that. Yeah. you know, and being under all these um, drugs, like I'm allergic to morphine, so I can't have that. So all I could take in the end was uh, cocodamol and paracetamol. I remember from talking to you not not so very long after it happened. I guess I think after you'd recovered, it sounded like you were very self motivated and sort of it seemed like you had a plan each day to yeah. get yourself out of. Yeah. Situation. Yeah, but I, I think that's all I was focusing on. But then when I got out of, I got put on the ward, um, moved to this ward. All of a sudden, the fir- uh, they opened up my wound dressing for the first time, and I was it was all weeping. And they took samples of that. They said it's infected, and I had a terrible night that first night. And I was looked after by a very good nurse, and I was not in a good way. And I'm sure that I may have died that night without that particular care okay. and, of that person. But after that, I start. I started to go get better, okay. and I started to. I was sat in the room and I was dealing with the situation of being in hospital, which is not easy anyway. And I was able to think. I think about the positive stuff. sign for me was when you started complaining about the noisy tea ladies rattling their trolleys down the corridor. And I just thought, oh, you're feeling better now. Yeah, <laughs> I think because after that, so I'd have been about five days in. I was able to start thinking again, mm. and I was just there thinking if I'd have died I'm you know what would my life have amounted to at this really? point okay I've, I would have left two little children 
who would probably barely remember their father. And I'd have left my lovely wife with that situation, which would have been horrendous. And what would my life been about but striving and striving for customers to do a good job and to do a high quality job to their to the specification or above that's agreed and to, to sort of that was my focus before that I mean I was very sort of very motivated to serve the customers very well even if I you know didn't do so well out of it myself it's very people pleasing sort of attitude in business I think did, did you feel at the time that underneath that the, the deeper motivation was building a financial future for your family or, or yeah I did but I did I'd missed the point I think of, mm. of, of it so I was stri- I felt that I was striving and striving and striving but I'd forgotten what I was striving for okay and it became it had become and I'd done a huge amount of very good work for people and very different sized projects and people were or seem to be, on the whole, most of them are very, very happy. And I've been very lucky to have excellent customers on the whole, um, my whole career. Um, but, you know, it's sort of striving and striving and losing sight of what you're striving for, which is having t- quality time provided for with your loved ones and family, you know. Um, and I think that... I totally lost the balance before I never had the balance in place because I was under co- underpricing things. Okay. So I was inundated with work, running around like a mad thing. Yeah. Um, doing... Do you think, out of interest, do you think at that time you were unhappy or were you happy enough but just not really thinking about the priorities? Well, I, I think... I mean, I was so focused on work that I would never stop thinking about work very rarely, mm. very rarely. So I'd wake up in the night and I'd think about work or I'd dream about straightening bits of steel and they'd be in my dream. I'd be looking along these lengths of steel or I'd be dreaming, things like that, you know, yeah. obsessive dreaming about work. And before I went to bed every night, I'd think and order my next day and order my thoughts about mm. in the detail of how I'm going to set out certain jobs from mm. or how I'm going to survey a job or take a survey and make it into a job. You know, as anybody will know, in the sort of work that we I do for certain, it's you never stop learning in solving yeah. problems to achieve. It's a problem-solving thing because all the sites are different, all the customers' requirements are different, the finish is different, the materials can be different. You know, so there's quite a lot going on in someone's yeah. brain when you've got 20 jobs on. I so understand. I never used I to stop. Yeah. I don't think you can do that sort of work well without obsessing over it a little mm. bit mm. it doesn't just happen mm. so I was in hospital and I was in the, in the hospital bed and I was thinking to myself oh dear well I don't need to worry about work right now but how are we gonna you know I've got no insurance I don't know if you know I don't know if I'm going to be able to do the same job again anyway you know what are we going to do how are we going to cope and some of my friends were talking about doing a they were going to. They were asking you to ask me or something, weren't they? Mm. About a crowd about a crowd funder, and I'm, and I was like, no, I was going to say no, don't, you know. Bex has said, think about this because they want to do this for you, and then the next thing I, uh, the next day I think it was some. I got a text from somebody who I didn't know, saying, oh, I do, I do help you. Hope you're something like I do hope you're going to be all right, 
and that you I've just and I've just given you some money or something or and there was a really nice text and um I didn't know them though and I thought what's this all about um and I thought oh you know and then I heard Beck said Alistair's set up a crowdfunding page and I was like oh that's that's nice of him and um I'm, and I didn't really understand what it was and you showed me it and I was like really touched because there was quite a lot of money in there already and I thought well that's all, all re- from people we didn't know people <laughs> we didn't know who'd given us money because they knew the situation I was in I mean we ended up being gifted quite a lot of money wasn't it I don't mm. know how much it was exactly at the end but it was Six thousand pounds or more, wasn't it? I think. Was it? I yeah, think, yeah. I six thousand pounds or more from people who didn't know me, and it just—I was humbled by it, which sounds funny. And also, my attitude to money was challenged, and I was just grateful. I just thought this is absolutely, and I relaxed because as soon as there was a couple of thousand in there, I was like, oh wow, that's you know, I've been living, used to living hand to mouth with the business for many years. And to be gifted money immediately made me feel relieved. I didn't need to think about any of that. I just needed to focus on getting myself fit again and out of there. Yeah, I I was really touched by how people responded because I I set up the crowdfunding thing and I did a little YouTube video. I think it was fairly on early on. I had this YouTube channel. I had some followers, and I I just knew that a lot of people watching the videos that I made were self-employed, mm. and I just had an instinct. Although I was like, "Oh, should I use the channel to do this?" I just had an instinct. People would oh, yeah. connect and relate, and yeah. that that was partly from my experience because someone did exactly that for us when we had a time yeah. of need in our family. It's really to know that other human beings who don't know me but just because I'm a human being and they they maybe because they can um sort of feel because they're in the same boat they can relate it's like I I was always a very sort of independent I'll make my money I'll do what I need to do no nonsense I'll sort it out but when I couldn't do that people through through you and your help um of putting it out there were generous enough to give their hard-earned money when they were... And think, instead of... And that's a sacrifice on their part of that cash because they could have, you know, done something different with it. I think that was a marvellous sacrifice at the time. Um, and it's made, it's inspired me to be more generous when I can be and to be more sympathetic and empathetic with people. Um, Tell us more about how things have changed since... Because you talked about how you were with work dominating your thoughts and your time and this striving before I mean I think I'm much more able to pace myself you know and and be more trying to be more sensible with what I'm taking on trying to actually look and see if a job is is right for me before I take it on for various reasons um, actually saying no to some jobs when I don't feel, you know, it's, you know, I don't want to do this job. That's, you know, and try and say it politely, but not not interested in taking on this work because um, it doesn't suit, suit my situation for whatever reason It's personal to me. And that's a good thing to, to be able to do and quite empowering. I don't, I'm not saying I want to turn away all, the, all loads of work, but what I'm saying is it's not, the most important thing so if it doesn't work for me in the right way 
and I want to do a good job, same as I've always done. And but in the old days, I think I would sort of want that more than to earn enough money from the job. Okay. You know, so I think in some ways, what's happened with this, as I said to you earlier on, this this that's happened to me with the operation two years ago is probably one of the best things that could have happened to me in my life because it's made me, given me a, a reset in my mm. attitude and my, not you know, I, th- I was thinking in the old days, I think, I'll, th- I'll think about how bad all this is for me to- tomorrow. I'll keep going because it's working for me now, but I'll, I'll reset it tomorrow. I'll just get this job done and then I'll, you know, whereas it's, it's easy to keep busy. It's a sort of almost a sort of laziness to keep busy sometimes because yeah. it stops you thinking. Not, not reassessing and thinking actually this 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 job wasn't worth doing. You know, mm. uh, really because I've practically paid bit or been paid ten pounds an hour mm. to do something that probably is worth you know three or four five times that per per hour. Yeah. I think the whole reset of myself has left me in such a better place. I'm actually, I've enjoyed a summer. I just thought this summer, actually, I'm going to enjoy a bit more time. I'm not going to take on, I'm going to have more time with the family. Obviously, I'm going to make a bit less money, but I'm going to slow things down. I'm going to not be pressurised. I'm going to take on less work. I'm going to try and keep it to five or six jobs at one time, on the go at one time, and the other stuff in quotes and stuff is and looking at jobs is different but the jobs that I've taken on to try and keep it to that level I'm going to make sure that I'm I'm not going to be pressured yeah. is there anything that you both want to say so this feels like a leading question but it just seems like a great, a great opportunity to speak to some of the people who may be listening who, who did give that two, two and a bit years ago yeah. you want to say directly to them yeah oh, thank you <laughs> yeah incredibly grateful, ma- majorly grateful it took the pressure off so that Paul could just get better and not yeah. be worried and stressed. Yeah, basically, very touching. when I saw that coming in and the, the number going up, I, w- I was so astounded at the generosity of and the sacrifice of other people for somebody they didn't know, you know, and it was really enabled me to just focus on getting better not worrying about my family or my business. And I, I'm just so, so grateful for Alistair, for you to, to have started uh, the, the GoFundMe for me without asking me. And, um, That's good to hear. You know, I'm so pleased yeah. that you did that because I think I think it was meant to be and I'm so pleased well, and thankful. For and we have been friends and family that you know, contributed yeah, to Yeah, I'm course, so yeah. thankful yeah. for... I mean, it's, it's a cliche, but it was, for me, it was a sort of paying forward thing. And I, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think I would have done it if someone hadn't done it for me mm. i would have thought about it and then i would have been i, I would have thought oh no I, I should leave it to someone else mm. you know but it is i think because someone just did it for me i yeah, always wanted to just wonderful, do that wonderful you, so a gift i think i think kindness does beget kindness mm. so mm. yeah definitely well, thank you chatting well thank you thank you to all the lovely craftsmen who helped me and all the other people who gave it you made it possible so thank you have a great christmas yeah and you cheers